Hello and welcome, dear friends, listeners. Thank you. I am Jason Traeger, your host of the Traeger Method podcast. This is episode number 86 of the podcast. So happy we made it to 86. I am very, very happy to share with you a conversation this episode with my friend, my guest, another San Diego punk legend. I, I, I see that a, uh, a series is, is starting here with last episode's Chris Squire episode. This episode, we have Bobby Lane, one of the great San Diego punk artists, flyer makers. Today, he works as a tattooer in San Diego. He is my guest this episode, Bobby Lane. I've been wanting to talk to Bobby, have him on the podcast for a long time. I saw him at Rick Froberg's memorial, and we made the connection, and we're doing it now. We did it, and this is me sharing it with you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm, I, I know you'll enjoy it. We talk about that era. He talks about getting into punk in 1980, what I think of as old school San Diego punk, because it was the era just before I got there. But he points out old school San Diego was actually started in the 70s. He missed that. He came into it right at the beginning of the hardcore era that we all know and love. At least most of us do. If you don't know what hardcore is in relation to punk, go back and listen to an earlier episode, maybe. I don't, you know what I'm saying. You know what, you know what it is. This is a pretty niche audience, I think. If you don't, if you're listening and you don't know that one, welcome. If you do know, welcome. Welcome to everybody. You belong here. We are a community. What else do Bobby and I talk about? We talk about tattooing, the old school tattoo world, the modern age of tattooing, the differences between them, his own journey as a tattooer. It's cool to learn about that stuff. Talks about reinvention of punk, repackaging, revitalizing periods of when it's less interesting, when it gets more interesting, the guiding, non-stylistically bounded, you know, root attitude of it, novelty, rebellion, invention, as represented, he, he points out, as represented very well by the San Diego band Crash Worship that we've talked about quite a bit. I'm going to be speaking with members of Crash Worship on future episodes. I connected, reconnected with a couple of them down in, at the memorial. Bobby talks about how, to, in his mind, they really represented that original punk spirit without, you know, uh, adhering to any strict stylistic code and how that spark inv- inspired him to get involved. We also close the conversation, or towards the end of the conversation, we talk about the vital, the very the vi- the vitality in the Latin X manifestations of punk today. Not that punk, you know, in LA, Southern California and beyond have has always had a deep connection and manifestation in those communities. East LA punk, of course. The brat, the plugs, all that. Um Ch- San Diego, of course, Chula Vista punk, going back to the zeros. We talked a lot about Chula Vista Punk when I, I think it was episode 42, when I talked with Fernando Fernie Cruz of Run For Your Fucking Life. 
might go back to the episode I did with Chris from Chris Chacon of BCT, Bad Compilation Tapes, which uh, became Borderless Countries Tapes, BCT. In those conversations, we talked about Luis Goreña, legendary Tijuana music figure, promoter, musician of Tijuana No. Go back and listen to that episode with Chris Chacon. So the way the Traeger Method podcast works. You know, we weave these themes in and out. We revisit them. I was happy that we got to talk about it more with Bobby. We even speculated on the connection, why punk um, is so is such a good fit south of the border in particular. We were talking about even like down to the skull. You know, it's Dios de los Muertos coming up. You know, the skull iconography going back to the Aztecs death imagery always been huge in punk and the guitar itself you know guitar music seems to be kind of on the is waning these days if you look at the billboard charts certainly but in latin countries the guitar always reigns supreme stringed instruments etc so that was cool to get into that stuff and spin we you know speaking about borders too i was talking about borderless compilation tapes you know that was always the attitude of the punks towards the border we never it was never celebrated was always something to be overcome. It was never, you know, it's just a, it affects culture, but culture never honors it. Music doesn't honor the border. You know, Solucio Mortal used to come up from San Diego, from Tijuana to play shows in San Diego, Los Angeles. It spent a week back then, pre 9-11, you know, they'd spend a week trying to get across the border. Usually get all the, all the members across. Be harder nowadays, of course. I used to love going down to Tijuana to see shows. Always very exciting. Like I said, is a big part of what made San Diego what it what it is. Tijuana, San Diego, one big urban sprawl with a fence going through the middle. Oh, but Jason, you don't want the border. You want it to be porous. You want that. You want the Sinaloa cartel. You want the Jalisco New Generation to come over to San Diego and wreak their chaos and madness there. Is that what you're advocating? Of course not. Nobody wants that kind of insanity in their neighborhood. But this idea that the world can be made safe by just building bigger fences and enforcing the fences and dehumanizing people on the other side of the fence, it's not my style. It's not what I believe. And also, you know, just all the, all the pain south of the border with the drug cartels and such, where do the guns come from? They're all from flag-waving American companies. Where are the drugs going? They're all going to rich European and American you know, countries to the north, countries to the, to the whatever. You know what I'm saying. We just want to keep the pain over there. It's not how it works. And with global warming, climate change, people are going to be moving like crazy. Which leads me to, of course, the news of, you know, that's on many of our minds. It's been on my mind a lot. I'm sure many of you are also thinking a lot about it, reading, studying, feeling Uh, holding it in your head and your heart, I hope. You've always got to keep things in your heart as well. Situation in Israel-Palestine, of course, is what I'm talking about. It's one of those ones that for, you know, most of us, for myself, it's always in the background as one of those seemingly just intractable situations. It's got all, it's got so much of the, it's like, like every problem on earth is in there. We, all of humanity seems to have some special stake in it. Everybody can see themselves in one side or the other. Just seems like it'll just never, like I said, just totally intractable. 
hate to even think about it, but then something like this happens and you're, you know, forced to look or not, you know, you're, maybe you don't pay attention to it. Maybe you just put it out of your mind too. I'll say one thing. If you, if you, I'm not going to break it down and, and try and sway you to think about it a certain way. You know, you can, you can figure that out for yourself. It's not, that's not the best use of this introduction. I will say, if you think it can't be understood, which I, I think a lot of people kind of have that idea, oh, it's really complicated. I can't really even fully understand. I, I hope everybody's okay. You know, that's a nice position, but, uh, and I'll just say this, you can understand it. You know, whatever the faults of YouTube, for instance, it is a good resource. You can understand. If you devoted a couple e- evenings to watching some good information, you might just want to want to do that. Or not, again, or not. You know, I just think personally as an American, since Israel is essentially a 51st state now, and like all the police tactics that we have uh, arrayed against us by our militarized police, like back in the BLM protests and stuff. You know, most of that stuff is all tested out, invented in Israel and then shipped over here. You know, it might be worth your time to understand it since it's basically an American war. That's my feeling about it. You, You know, I would say just learn the history of the past 100 years and then learn what life is actually like there in the Palestinian, you know, West Bank, Gaza, for uh, Arab Israeli citizens of Arab descent, which, you know, there's quite a few. And if you understand the history and you understand what life is like, what the Israeli state is like, you can make up your own mind. I don't have to tell you what to think. I will also say as American, though, I will say also as Americans, you know, the, the corporate propaganda we get, corporate media, the messaging from the government is going to be skewed incredibly heavily towards empathy, humanization, care, concern for Israel and Israelis, which is another reason why it's, it behooves us to educate ourselves about the plight of the Palestinians, in my opinion, just as a balance you know, you don't have to do any work to find out, to get the message that Israel can do anything it wants to preserve the status quo and that Israeli lives matter. You do not need to work to find that message at all. You need to work a little harder to find the other one. And by harder, I mean watch a few YouTube videos, read a few articles. When these kind of things happen, I like to always also keep the big picture in mind. You know, because you know the way the the news cycles work, like something happens and then suddenly all other concerns are swept aside. This becomes the most pressing issue that everybody needs to think about, whatever it is, you know, then eventually it fades away and becomes just another historical thing. And, you know, it's replaced by something else. Then that becomes the thing everybody needs to think about and comment on. You know, that's one of these uh, problems with the social media era is this, uh, well, that's a whole nother thing, just the pure information overload and conflicting. It can make anybody want to just be quiet and say nothing or, and I'm not saying what you need to do. And this whole idea that we all have to have a press office for our personal brands. And most people just straight up don't have time for that. Everybody's trying to just survive, maintain, do whatever they have to do. 
you know, that's, it's crazy that we all need to do that. We don't need to all do that. And speaking out, you know, it's great, but also, I don't know exactly what it accomplishes. I mean, it does accomplish something, I bet. But it's not, you know, I'm never going to be the guy who says, everyone has to do what I do and feel the way I do and see it the way I do and respond the way I do, or you're a bad person. It's like, no. You know, the kind of big picture stuff I think about is like, everyone has a conditioned mind. Everyone's mind is conditioned by experience, information, background, etc. And everybody's mind, you know, and we're all like responding in some ways to trauma, our own personal traumas, traumas of collective traumas, collective traumas and stuff. They make people do crazy things. We uh, act and react from these places of trauma. I don't know that trauma can be healed on collective scales. I, I really don't know. I know that it can be healed, it can be helped, it can be worked with on individual scales, for sure. I know that for a fact. On collective uh, levels, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not sure if that can be. One thing I do know is that we all need to hang on to our humanity and keep in mind you know, what our true essence is. I mean, I talk about it a lot, non-duality, meditation, mindfulness. That's not the kind of thing that you throw out when stuff gets crazy. It's something to keep in mind when stuff gets crazy, to keep in practice when stuff gets crazy. You know, pay attention to what is actually true and present and real. Notice what thoughts are, what they're made of. It's never a bad thing to do. Stay centered in the eternal now. Never a bad thing to do. See what is real. What is actually your experience? What is happening? Never bad. Very important to stay grounded in that. And that's just just a totally a essential practice for all of life. And when you think about the time we live in, with climate change, which is the biggest story unfolding on Earth, everything else is, you know, against that backdrop. You know, what I see lately these days, what I've noticed is that we're, we seem to be as a people or whatever, a race, we're kind of a human race. We seem to be kind of dispensing with this idea of higher values, like in terms of power structures and stuff. Just generally speaking, we seem to be moving towards this way of doing things where it's like power just matters. It's just power for power's sake so that the people with power can get things the way, can have things the way they want them. That's the only real way things work. You know, if you have $200 billion, make it $300 billion. Let's not even, let's dispense with this idea that we're all looking out for one another, that there's some greater humanity. Not that, you know, people have ever been otherwise, but we, you know, there was a time, you know, I, th- I can think back in my lifetime when, leaders, there was like statesman-like behavior. Leaders kind of, you know, sought to have, even like somebody like Reagan or something would speak in those terms of these higher aspirational values. That just does not seem to be a thing anymore. It seems to be getting less so as things intensify. And I think, I, I do think, I'm going out there right now, but I, I do think it's partly this ramp up in the climate age climate change age where it's like, yeah, we're going through this 
you know, mass extinction event. We're in the climate, the global warming climate catastrophe era. It's, it's going, it's heating up, it's speeding up. You know, people are, might not be going extinct, but there's going to be a mass death event. <laughs> not to be, I was talking about skull iconography and stuff earlier in punk, but yeah, you know, it's, it does seem, I mean, I don't think I'm being, I think it's reasonable to say that that's what we're heading towards. And as such, and the fighting for, you know, resources and all that kind of stuff, it's going to intensify. And I think that's part of what is inspiring this kind of gloves off power for power's sake. Let's dispense with the idea that we can, that we even need to pretend to be fully humanitarian anymore. That's what I think it kind of is coming from. You know, late stage capitalism is is all woven into that as well. That whole like winner takes all. It does not matter if it, if it serves you, that's fine. Do whatever you want if you can get away with it. And until somebody can wrest the power from your hands, you have the power. The one with the power gets to do whatever the hell they want. Boom. And like I said, I think it's always been that way. But but uh, but now it feels even more so, and the stakes are higher, or something, or there's just more people that will suffer. I'm not sure. Oh, and also, I should say the Bobby Lane interview is coming up. It will be fun. We will enjoy ourselves then. We won't just be talking about a mass death event for humanity. But hey, this is a punk podcast. You guys can handle it. I mean, this that's a part of what this is about. But it's also a mindfulness and meditation podcast. You know, live now, see eternity now. All you ever live in is an eternal, deathless, ever-present state of becoming. We are not objects in space and time. That's the hopeful message that I think we all need to keep in mind. You know, I've, I've talked about the, the very bleak place I got to I don't, I mean, on the podcast, you might, if you listen back through, you can actually find that time when I took a big break from the podcast. I was feeling so bleak, so grim about the future. I was so focused on it. What hope is there? People are hopeless. It's like this, uh, you know, Palestinian Israeli situation. There's no hope. We'll never be able to get out of this. And it's just going to be catastrophe after catastrophe, and it's just going to get worse and worse. And there's a mass extinction event, and my own life is like I don't have a future, and it does. The world doesn't have a future, and what's the point of anything? And fascism is a natural thing that's just going to occur at this time of great stress and upheaval. And oh my God, what next? That was kind of where I got to, you know. And I got to that thing where I'm going like, well, you know, me being totally upset and bombed. And just sad and bleak and unhappy. And does that help anyone? That was the question that came to my mind. You know, like, does this help anyone? Something is wrong with this picture. And if you're feeling like that now because of what's unfolding there and the mass death that's going on in Gaza, you know, it's a horrible feeling. I remember very well after 9-11, just going, well, you know, as soon as you saw those towers fall, you're like, well, a lot of people are about to die and you just knew it and it happened and you couldn't stop it. You know, I went out and protested like crazy. The whole world protested. Remember the protests in London, all over the, all over Europe, all over the United States, biggest protests ever. 
didn't do anything to stop it. It happened anyways. We didn't want it. We knew it was dumb. It was dumb. You know, fast forward 20 years, trillion dollars spent in Afghanistan just to hand power back to the Taliban. Only now they've been armed with U.S. equipment. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, who even knows how many people died after 9-11. The only thing accomplished was moving a trillion dollars into the pockets of a military industrial complex. Who knows what the fallout is going to be from this thing? I mean, the world is in such an insane place right now. So if you're feeling just that feeling of like, oh my God, like that thing I was just describing, that kind of calculation, let me tell you, there is a so there is something hopeful, which is what I arrived at, which is this, this non-dual understanding. We weren't born, we don't die. Both of those things exist only in the imagination. The present is in the imagination. There is no dividing line between the past, the present, and the future. It is not some navel-gazing hippie thing to see that and realize it. It's just looking at reality as it actually is. Seeing, noticing the dreamlike quality of reality doesn't mean you don't have to do anything about injustice. You don't need to participate. You don't need to be informed. You don't need to speak out. It's quite the opposite. It means you can act in accordance with your values that reflect this understanding that we're all one, that reality is one seamless whole. You can act in accordance with that without being obsessed with getting the outcome you want sometime in the future. You cease living always for a future outcome. You stop that or you minimize that. You don't do that as strongly. It's not always about getting a future outcome that you want, whether it's in your personal life or in the world. You can relax into the eternal nature of now. Sort of start from a place of being okay with what is, accepting what is as it is. It has something to teach you. You know, you'll notice good times, bad times, hard times, easy times, they all have something to teach you. They all have something to teach us, I mean. You know, and I have questioned many times in my life, what am I here for? Why do we have to do this? One thing I know I'm here for is to learn. I keep an open mind and an open heart so that I can learn, so that I'm not just sitting looking at circumstances of my life, of the world, quote-unquote, of the mind and judging them all the time, saying, I know that shouldn't be this way. Instead, I go, no, it is what it is. It is how it is. What can I learn? You know, these madmen and these insane systems and, and such that uh, all these people that think the goal of life is that, that power idea, that it's all about getting power and then using it so that you get the best things. You get the, the security, the fun, the excitement, the joy, the peace, the, the material stuff. You get all the toys, all the pleasure, all the fun. You know, that's that, that other way of thinking, that life is just about acquiring all those things, that there is no higher value to seek. There is no benefit to other people living in peace or getting those, some, some sort of share of that. 
you know, if they can be conquered, if they can be eliminated, if they can be destroyed, subjugated, dehumanized, then that's more for me. You know, that whole attitude, it comes from this mistaken idea. It comes from not seeing clearly how it actually is, in my opinion. It comes from the idea, the mistaken belief that we are objects in space and time. You only have so much life. You started at birth and you're going to end at death. And in between, you want to get, get all the good stuff you can. And uh, that's not how I see it. That's not how life is actually experienced. That's somebody not seeing the dreamlike quality of life. That's somebody saying, this is it. it you know, I'm blind to, to the fact that I have no, no sense, no perspective that this is more like a poem or a dream or a work of art or a vision than it is some concrete materialistic you know, uh, circumstance that we find ourselves in. Does that make sense? So I feel like, you know, by liberating your own perception of reality, you know, having your own mind not be so concretized in your own sense of yourself being this hardened, you know, point of just interest, of a, a, a collection of interests that you serve or whatever, by loosening that knot and, and being, having a more gentle approach with yourself, with quote-unquote the world, that is finding peace. That is seeking world peace. That is something you can actually do. And it will better equip you to act as a character in the dream, you know, as an agent in the dream. That's the point I'm making too. It's not, again, like I said earlier, it's not that you do one so you can just live in a dreamland and not uh, participate in the suffering of the world in healing and helping, fighting for justice and all that. You can do it from a place where you're okay, not where you're just another voice trying to raise the volume, raise the fire higher without any awareness. And, you know, maybe you say, nobody should do that. That's just hippie. That's navel-gazing. Everybody should just be moving the volume up to try and shout over the other the opposing view. Everybody should do that. Everybody, everybody. Let's all bang the drum. Let's all turn the volume up. Let's all throw gas on the fire. Everybody, everybody, everybody. You can do that. Other people can do that. You don't necessarily have to. You can, even if you act in a, you know, a way that's very pointed and takes a strong stance, do it from a place of inner calm. That's something I'm suggesting. It's the samurai way. I think. I'm not sure. Maybe it is. It sounds like it's probably the samurai way. There's things that have to be done, but you can do them from a place of equanimity, not from some inner chaos or total hopelessness. I think when people operate from inner chaos and total hopelessness, it is a bad, it's a difficult place and it's it, bad decisions are made and bad moves are made, bad strategies, etc. That's just, that's just my gut level feeling about it. I hope something I've said makes sense to you. It also brings me to the uh, um, something I advocate, you know, this meditation routine, five minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, 20 minutes twice a day, whatever you can do. 
that day in, day out meditating and that day in, day out mindfulness, which is just like meditating off the pillow, maintaining the meditative mind when you're going about your business. This, when you establish it as a practice in your life, when times do get more difficult or, or the, you know, the tension is raised in your life for whatever reason, it, the practice is there. The, the muscle has been strengthened. It's like, you know, you go to the gym every day, your muscles get stronger. Then when you need to do some strenuous activity, hey, you happen to be stronger. You didn't have to do anything special to gear up. You've already built that muscle. That's kind of what I'm, what I'm getting at when I suggest that course of action as a foundation. All right. I hope that's been helpful. I hope that's been useful. I love you guys. I will have links in the show notes to some videos that I've seen that, that I, I would suggest or reading that I would suggest um, to understand this situation better. Let's all pull together, pull for humanity, pull for peace, love, liberation. I don't know what else to do. All right. Thank you so much for listening, for being a part of the Traeger Method podcast family community. It means the world to me. If you want to support the podcast, Patreon Traeger Method, link in show notes. I'll have a link in show notes to Bobby Lane's Instagram so you can get a tattoo from him when you're in San Diego. I'll also have links to some other things, some information and places you can give to help the situation in Gaza and to learn more about the Israel-Palestine situation. I really appreciate you all listening. Now let's all enjoy, after a lot of heaviness, let's all enjoy a really fun conversation with my friend, San Diego punk legend, bonafide Bobby Lane. Hello, Bobby Lane. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Very well, thank you. It is an honor to have you on the pod. I've wanted to do this for a long time. Thank you very much. It has been a while coming, hasn't it? Yes. It was so good to see you down at Rick's Memorial. Of course, we would have liked for it to be under other circumstances, but it was awesome to see you down there. Yeah, like a like another Drive Like Jaden show or something. That would have been much, much better. Yeah. Oh, well. So let's start at the beginning. You, I mean, you are San Diego punk rock, old school. You are one of the great artists of the San Diego, especially the, 80 er, the 80s era of flyer art. I mean, you're, you're right up there with, you know, Mark Rude as one of the greats from that time. So many classic uh, images that I will, of course, be posting on Instagram to promote this. How did you, uh, where did I you grow up? Let's like just start. I feel like that same description applies to you too. Oh, I'm. I, well, Cause you're, you're one of, you're one of the artists from that, from that moment. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of, it kind of, at, at least people who got noticed from, from San Diego as flyer artists, you know, like I think there's, there's like Mark and Lee, like oh, they're yeah, kind of, of they're kind of like the, the first ones, although there's other artists that I keep finding out there that did stuff back then that are, that are like just super cool. And I never heard of them before. Or, any, or, any names that you want to share? It? I can't think of anybody offhand except for um, Mike Stobie. Mike Stobie used to, used to make flyers and 
have them copied at his own expense and deliver them to the record stores at his own expense. He was, um, I, I mean, I heard the story much later, but he was he was kind of a warrior for the scene back then. And that was, that was, I think, around the time that I first met him when he was like 15 or something like that. Was his last name spelled S-T-O-B-B-E? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember that name for sure. Yeah. Stoby. Yeah. Yeah. He's, um, he's a cool dude and he's, um, you know, a neighbor of mine too. I see, I see him around fairly often. Oh, that's good. Um, I can't think of anybody offhand. There's like people that like did like one flyer. Yeah. <laughs> and they never applied that particular skill to that again, but they, but they made like one genius one or something, you know? That's all that matters to be in the punk history books, you know. It's like one classic flyer, one classic lineup. You're 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 in there. You're on the yeah. internet forever. Yeah, I, I get. Yeah, I guess. I think about that whole thing, the history books and stuff. Like like thinking about the. Um, I'm gonna ta- I'm gonna take over. <laughs> Do it. That's what you're here for. Like thinking about the um, the museum lately and stuff. You mean the punk rock museum in Las Vegas? Yeah, and I think the museum is is cool. And uh, apparently, I have some stuff in it. Which is, I'd imagine, that's cool. I'm fl- I'm flattered and all that, but um, there's something about it that that still is is like as much as it's a great thing. There's something that's antithetical to um, punk rock. Like, like what punk rock is doesn't doesn't live in a museum. Like you can you can certainly like you can take all those echoes of it or whatever the 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 imprints of it. And kind of share that, but it's like, yeah, a good a good example would be to trying to explain or describe to anybody that had never been what it was like to be at and participate in a crash worship show. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that are obsessed with it because they they did miss out, and they can tell there's something there. But there is no fucking way to describe that. And I, I would assume you probably made a few too, either here in the Bay Area, for sure. Or, or I don't know where where you were at the time, but you did see them too. Yeah? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's, it's a whole. It was a whole different thing. It was like, and they were definitely part of punk rock, but what they were doing was was something so other and and like such a uh, I don't know, man. Like I I. I I went for that like so hard because in a way for me that was like oh oh this is this is what we were trying to do this is this is like what like what we wanted to do with all that earlier savagery but these guys they understand how to how to channel it a little bit better a little bit more interestingly believe me those shows were savage but they were also like for the most part people took care of each other you know what I mean kind of like the early punk rock so- shows which were savage again, but people people took care of each other. Around about eighty two, a lot of people started showing up that were they were not there to participate in that sense of community at all. You know what I mean? They were there to get their kicks and then go back to whatever high school or junior college they came from, and go back to football practice or wrestling practice or whatever it was that they normally did to express their sense of of uh, emergent testosterone yeah i never experienced the san diego uh, prior to that having moved there in 83 when did you start going to shows or what was your introduction yeah. to punk and what year um 1980 like um my first show was in august of 1980 
What was the lineup? And the lineup was the Stingers from LA, which were the Stingers were also sort of uh, Unit Three with Venus, who's known from uh, the Rodney on the Rock albums. The Stingers are kind of, I feel like they're kind of lesser known, except for like LA scene people. And they were a little bit on the cusp, I think, between like the punk rock and and the like the late seventies new wave thing. They're they were a fun band. They were cool. Uh, that was a headliner. Uh, the Neutrons uh, warmed up for them. So that was pretty cool. My first show to see the Neutrons, who, of course, you know, everybody knows became the Battalion of Saints. And uh, the executives, although the executives at that show were playing under the name of Conflict, which was interesting. They were and they were sporting a whole bunch of like um, mod gear, like targets and parkas and stuff like that. But playing their usual sort of like, I mean, it was pre pop punk, but they they play pop punk. You know what I mean? They play like Buzzcocks style, that kind of stuff. But yeah, pop, what became pop punk? You know, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, pop were, pop was in punk from the start. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure. I mean, everybody everybody dug the Ramones, you know, yeah. and and the Ramones are super pop, yeah, like AM radio music on on speed, super hooky, you know, yeah. And and luckily, yeah, luckily they didn't they didn't get picked up that much by radio because you know we still had them. <laughs> yeah, that was that was my first show, and Social Spit was the opener, and Sp- Social Spit at that time was a uh, was a different band. Um, then it became they had a, a different singer. Their singer was this guy named Bruce, who also went by the name Scabs. And uh the rest of the band was filled out with two members of uh five oh five one, Squirrel and Scott, who were brothers actually. And then uh Dave Fleminger was the other guitar player besides Squirrel. And uh he went on to bands like the Answers. And now plays in Albino in the Dwells and does like just tons of musical projects. That guy is a musical genius. Like mm. he can play like anything that has strings, like nobody's business. And, and and he also has like a professional career in music behind him, as far as I know. Like doing doing stuff like in the early days of tech and stuff like that in the Bay Area. And a, and a kid named uh named Brian. They, they just called him Brian the Surfer was the drummer back then. They, no joke, they took Clash and Pistols songs and just reworked the lyrics. That right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they did have some personality. I, I do remember like, like the way that singer was and stuff. Like he was totally like he probably should have been a singer at least in that time. But he was a, he was a character too. He recruited me not from my local high school, but from my neighborhood. I would walk home from high school. I would always uh, roll through the place where he worked, the, the neighborhood coffee shop, and uh, buy some candy or buy some snacks. One day, this guy starts working in there that has like close cropped hair, wears like one of those like like hats like the leather daddies wear you know like but he's he's trying to look kind of like an ss officer guy but at the same time he's got like i don't know he's got like vans on and stuff and he's just this crazy dude you know and i'm like <laughs> of course i talk to him you know i'm like at that point i'm like a surfer kid how old are you kid. 
15 and you know my uniform every day is literally like surf trunks and vans you know yeah. like I don't, I don't even wear anything that has pockets in it you know i just wear like my surf trunks to school every day and, no no op shorts oh i got op shorts yeah i got all that stuff but i was kind of like i would just wear my surf trunks all the yeah. time especially when it was hot you know what neighborhood did you grow up in high school was tierra sam i grew up kind of like bounced around different neighborhoods in San Diego or areas of the county before that. But yeah, high school is Tierra Santa. So I went to high school with Eric Rice, who I'm sure that you know of. Um, if you don't know of him, you should know of him. Yes, I know of him, but tell the people who he is. He's got he's got a really fucking cool, incomplete uh, documentary out there called Garage Land that can be viewed on, on YouTube already, but it's incomplete. You know, I never, I actually never recorded my part for it too. And um, I'm sure he could use a lot of, a lot of other uh, support if he's going to, if he's going to finish it. Anyway, Eric Reif is a really cool uh, photo journalist, photographer, did tons of photography at the Casbah and other local shows around San Diego. He drove me and our crew to like just about every show in the early days once me and him started hanging out which was like december of 1980 i think i met him just a little bit after i cut my hair off and started going to shows we got into the music together so and and we're like i think both of us like knew hardly anybody that was interested in punk rock and especially not interested in it exclusively but very interested in it and interested in it in a in a big way you know what do you think drew you to it what kind of uh, kid had you been prior to discovering punk and what drew you to it um well like i said i was a um, i was a surfer skateboarder you know i lived inland though so i wasn't really like you know i didn't live right at the beach I had lived in Coronado for two years, um, hmm. for a little while, just you know by luck, kind of, because it was it was still a little bit expensive to live there then. Coronado is like an island connected by a bridge that's right in the bay, basically, right? Yeah, and I just lived with my mom, so and there was there was that. I think the whole like you know like being from a, a from a divorced family, having things not be like perfect i mean at this point i'm like i'm not gonna bag on anybody <laughs> <laughs> especially from my own family you know things weren't like totally perfect and and then there was the, like just the energy of it like i didn't really even think about the whole aspect of being when i think about it in retrospect it's like making yourself socially retarded on purpose uh-huh how so what do you mean to, to become a punk rocker yeah just putting yourself at odds you're sort of consciously, you know, I mean, at least if, if you visually become a punk rocker and in, in that time it was easy to, all you had to do was cut your hair short. You could still wear the same damn clothes and everything. People hella noticed if you all of a sudden had hair this short <laughs> when you had hair down on your shoulders before and every other kid in school does and everybody's, you know, they're jamming out to Van Halen in the parking lot. They're not they're not listening to the Circle Jerks first record. They're not conscious of what's like on KROQ and like what's coming out of LA and San Francisco and New York and all that stuff. They're just like, they're still on that same whatever FM radio is is feeding them at that at that time, which, you know, FM radio, whereas FM radio had been great at some point, the late 70s, it became not just stale, but a tool for conformity you know mm. so it was it didn't suit our purposes anymore although i will give I, I did hear the sex pistols for the first time 
on a local station here long before I really became interested in the in the stuff like right when that that first pistols record came out one of the the djs maybe jim mcginnis at, at kpri actually played that thing on the radio a few times before i think it got banned <laughs> <laughs> quietly you know what i mean it was just like oh but yeah for a while we're hearing a couple of tracks off of that you know like anarchy and god save the queen and it was like well, what the fuck is that? Like it made an middle, impression in the middle of foreigner and fog hat and just this like the stuff, you know, that was all of a sudden you have this like injection of adrenaline and like, wow, Chuck Berry, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, it, what, it doesn't seem as groundbreaking as it, as it once did in some ways, but it, it it was. It totally was. You know. Oh yeah, his voice was like nothing. I mean, that was like there's no other sound like that on '70s radio. My God. Yeah, and it, it still it had to be referential to rock and roll still somehow sure. to make any sense to people at all. Yeah. If punk rock had came straight out the gates with hardcore, would have just gone over in a corner and died somewhere. Maybe you know it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have gone through that massive growth that that became a platform for hardcore. You know, right. you know, springboard from and go to the next, the next chapter or whatever until it became heavy metal. It just sucked completely. <laughs> <laughs> so when you first started getting into like into punk in like 1980, where were you finding out about records and <laughs> bands and shows and things like that? What was the mode of you know information gathering that you did? Well, meeting that one guy, yeah, and then making friends with other people in the scene. Squirrel was kind of the first person that, like, besides that guy, befriended me and uh, and was like, was like, hey, like, you know, like, you wanna you wanna hang out and 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 do shit, like, sometimes during the week too, but you know, like, he'd pick me up for shows because I was fifteen, and when I was sixteen, I wasn't getting a car or a license right away because I just didn't have it together like that, and uh, so you know, I had I had friends and I had phone numbers. You know, and I met the guys at the boys club pretty soon after getting involved. So once I knew the boys club, the boys club was the center of everything almost. What was um, it? The boys club was a house where um, Big Mickey lived from Dead or Alive, who was uh, Tim Mays' partner in Dead or Alive. And Dead or Alive, for people who don't know. Dead or Alive Productions, which put on shows, I think, but basically between like 80 and 82, maybe 83. I'm not, I'm not sure when Tim basically took over. Actually, maybe it wasn't even as late as 82. I think they might've lasted till 82 at the, at the most. It was also, uh, Mark Rude was part of it somehow, but I think the money part of the partnership was all like Mickey and Tim. So they put on shows at the Lions Club, shows at Fairmont Hall, some shows at Wabash, but all the shows in, in that era. Just knowing those guys, and they were like, they're not far away from me in Claremont. I'd get there a lot, like either after shows and just, you know, find out what was going on. I met Mark Rude there, and he kind of like, I'd already started doing some flyers and giving them to Mick, who was using them, but they were done with whatever I could find around the house at home, you know, whatever pens or whatever and, and some of that stuff it was okay it was inspired but um you know like on the technical side i i needed some help i remember in somebody's bedroom at the at the house there mark Reed gave me a uh, 
a little tutorial on on basically like what type of pens to use, what type of paper to use. If you want your artwork to look the best that it can, you know, regardless of what you're what you're doing, what your hands doing or whatever. You just said, yeah, if you and if you want your your works to last forever and look good, like then use good quality ink and good quality paper and you basically told me to get some good bristol board and get some rapidograph pens yeah if you want, be, if, if you want to be pens. A, an illustrator and and do that and um i did and immediately started aping his style just like just just going for it but i love what he was doing so much i was like fuck i know this is lame probably but i just want to do it too <laughs> <You know? laughs> So. Yeah, I mean, anybody who draws and looks at the Mark Ridd stuff, you're going to be like, I got to work with these dots with this pontalism, you know? Oh, and I, st- I still do here and there. And I get asked to do tattooing that style um, fairly often, too. And I actually, I just, you know, I think a lot of tattooers get kind of mental with that stuff. They're like, oh, it's so many dots, you know, it's hard to do. It's hard to keep track of the gradation, et cetera. I kind of love it. Oh yeah, it's very, it's very meditative. I get lost in that stuff. If anything, the trick is just like you got, you got to be careful to not get so lost that you forget to keep track of like gradating it nicely and stuff. You know? The big picture, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, sometimes yeah. when I when I think of that early San Diego scene, I often think of like people doing speed and I, I a lot of times when it later when i was older i'd look at the mark Rude stuff and go how much of this was because of doing speed that style of just uh intense detail that i don't know maybe maybe that's wrong maybe that's a mistaken um assumption you know i i didn't know him well enough to know like the trajectory of all mm-hmm. of that because i've seen earlier work from like before that i knew him though i, I would assume it's like 70s stuff it still has a very similar vibe Mm. you know i don't know if he was into those things yet yeah i do know um here's here's the thing um i was a lot younger than mark he let me hang around him but something that i noticed about mark was that he was very protective of all of us young people in the scene Mm. if you needed a place to stay like if you were just like you couldn't get home or, you know, heaven forbid you had, you know, you had parents that were like, you know, abusing you or something like that. You could go to Mark's house and you could be totally safe if you were like 15, 16, 17 years old. Mm, and he wasn't so going to cool. do anything weird to you himself. Because I think he'd experienced a fair amount of that kind of stuff as a, as a teenager and a young person. Mm. So he was always really cool and really protective. But I think because of that, I... I never saw him do any drugs i sort of knew somehow anyway that they're probably doing speed i never saw it and i didn't see it later either because he left town by the like 83 yeah right i don't don't know like that guy he had he had rough spots you know but he had some character also you know he he did i think he was he was um as much as he was fallible and i've heard I've heard uh, not nice things about him from some people that I I don't I don't know those experiences personally, but I know other things where he was just like a super I don't know a, a good guy, you know. That's so cool. He, he was a good guy. He he at least had the tendency to look out for kids, you know, which was that that was something in our scene. Whereas you had you had other people that were uh, 
a little older in the scene that were definitely not looking out for kids. Yeah. They were, if, if anything, they were maybe even looking to victimize kids. Mm. But, um, you know, without naming any names. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever know Sean yeah, Carey? Did you know Sean Carey back in those days? I met her. Um, I, I, I couldn't say that I knew her. Unfortunately, I wish that that we had uh, been friends but she was already gone from san diego pretty much by the time yeah she i think she was already up in la like by like 79 at the mm. latest doing cartoons and stuff the magazine cartoons uh, but, yeah yeah cartoons magazine and hot rod and whatever else that she worked for she did tons of work i mean like i knew her work from being a kid and looking at those things before punk rock and but right. i didn't know i knew her work until later that I meet her, I meet, I had met her, like, I think in 81, I went to a Comic-Con with Lee and his wife at the time and some of, some other friends. And uh, I believe that they introduced me to Sean at that Comic-Con. It was either at that Comic-Con or it was someplace else downtown, maybe right around the same time. Like we just ran into her. And he's like, hey, this is my friend Sean, you know. And of course, I'm a kid, so I had the least to add to the conversation. So I didn't really, I I didn't really, barely felt like I met her. Yeah. Years later, um, I ran into her on the street in PB around 2003, I think. And it was sort of a fluke that I ran into her or that, that we spoke. And it was all because I was wearing a black flag baseball jersey and uh we both happened to be standing at the don't walk light waiting to cross. Wow. And she saw me wearing that jersey and she's all, oh, wow. My friend used to be their singer. He was really cool, man. We used to talk about everything, just like everything, everything. Like gave me like the, the briefest but succinct description of Keith Morris that <laughs> somehow because I knew bits of our history or whatever or bits of things about them that i knew that she was talking about keith morris and then i i i i was like sean i did that i just that just said that and she's all oh yeah how do you know my name (laughs) you know amazing and she was um she was really cool but like i'd see her a lot during that time all of a sudden after i met her that one time i'd always see her walking back from the beach in the evening she'd sometimes roll into the tattoo shop where i worked at she'd forget who i was like from day to day yeah because she'd had a had a brain injury right and so and she i think she was still drinking or something like that and that probably wasn't like adding to things yeah I mean, she'd still find she'd still find me, but then she'd like forget my name and forget forget everything, and, and we just you know we just talk new like every day. Wow! But she was cool. I, you know, I really blew it. I didn't have her draw anything for me or try to collaborate with her or anything. But it was really like it was just a a quick hit and miss kind of interaction all the time, and I was always busy doing my job, so. I didn't really, I don't know. I didn't really have the opportunity to to get into it with her too much, and then I just stopped seeing her at some point. It's gr- it's great that they found her and that she's still around. Yeah, uh, she was. A lot of people already thought she was dead back then. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and and it it was uh, it was actually me telling that story online that that made a lot of people go, "Hey, this guy says she's still around," and 
indeed she was, you know, you know, Carl, I think it was after that Carl went out and found her for like the documentary and stuff. And, right. Well, no, he found her right during that time, but then she was lost again. And then I think he was maybe instrumental in finding her again. Anyways, luckily somebody has found her and I feel like they're, they're at least working on getting her some of the money that she's due. Yeah. They at least take care of her and her, in her uh, later years, you know, yeah, I spoke with those film, the filmmakers, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and uh, they would, I forget how they got in touch with me. Maybe Adam from Jawbreaker, I think, turned and suggested they talk to me because I had posted about her, something like that. But anyways, they gave me her phone number, and I was able to call her at the facility she lives at, and we had a phone conversation, and it was really cool. She was... Oh, nice. Yeah, and she was just like you described, like she would ask me, like, have you ever heard of the germs? And I'm like... Yeah, I've heard of the germs, you know, but it's like kind of like, well, they were good friends of mine, you know, like absolutely uh, so nice and just very charming and so sweet. And I ended up sending her a bunch of drawing equipment materials, you know, like Bristol board and pens and things because she was saying she didn't have a lot of stuff. And but I didn't like keep in touch. And they the facility, I guess, got after. So I guess a few people were getting in touch with her and they were kind of like her. um What's you know, what's the word like conservator or something was like we need yeah. to keep a lid on all this stuff and people can't send her stuff anymore and so that was that was the limit of it but we'll oh. see yeah and I know there's like issues with her living situation she has to be below a certain income in order to keep her place through the state but they're so they're trying to do this foundation to get her money but that won't affect her living situation yeah that's right. what I under, that's what I understand yeah at least pay for whatever her expenses are. Yeah. She certainly should have access to all the art material she can get, you know, that she wants. Yeah. Oh. yeah at, the, at the least. Yeah. But yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what, what comes of that documentary. I haven't heard anything since that little period of time. Yeah. I, I sort of had a chance to, to, to meet her at, at some point. And I think like you said, the chance might've, might've passed mm. because that, that whole thing kind of tightened up. But it's so cool. She's out there and she's alive and she certainly had very good spirits when I was just spoke to her that one time. That's awesome. Yeah. And Cause she, I, I was under the impression too, like you were saying, like many people that I didn't think she was around, you know, living and it's just very uh, magical kind of to be like, I'm talking to Sean Carey. Cause she was also for me. I mean, she was the top punk artist, you know, I mean, the circle jerks drawings, all the DOA war on 45, you know, when I was like 12, 13, those drawings, I just couldn't believe. And then, of course, I realized, oh, yeah, she's the woman from cartoons because I used to get that in the 70s. And it all started coming together. And, man, her body of work is incredible. She brought professional quality work to to punk rock. Right. Yeah. And, like, like when I talked to her, like, her whole thing with, like, um, the fact that she drew the skank guy and stuff like that. Yeah. She's all, oh, I just... I just signed it over at some point because like, I didn't want it to fuck uh, my friendship up with Keith. You know, I was just like, it didn't matter, you know? And I'm sure back then it was small potatoes compared to, you know, what her income was doing for her and stuff. Right. But, um, you know, now that they, that they're huge, you know, I think, I think rightfully like she ought to get a permanent cut, you know what I mean? Oh man, the, the skanking man. It's like right up there with the black flag bars, the DK, the Cynthia's minor threat sheep. You know, it's like, it's one of the ones. 
Yeah. Top like, five. If they didn't use that image anymore, I mean, I don't know. It would just be like, it's like, guys, where'd your image go? You yeah. know, because that, that is their image, that that logo. At, at this point, the way that they're working, that's worth some some good dough for her, you know. Oh, at, yeah. at least at least something that would uh that would contribute to her well-being but yeah For i sure. mean those guys are working it right now and they may not play like huge places but they tour consistently i'm sure they sell a lot worldwide you well, know think of how many times that's been screen printed that's appeared on or how about tattoos i mean my god oh yeah yeah, and there's yeah, there's no way to monetize that, but it's a really nice tribute. Yeah, I think sure. I, I think I've done it probably a, at least a few times. You know, when did you start tattooing? 1993 is when I picked it up for the first time and started tattooing in tattoo shops in 1995, I believe. Had you gotten when was you did you get your first tattoo? 1992. Oh, really? That late? <laughs> Quite late. I was I had some ideas before that, and then. Uh, then it was kind of about money because I, mm. you know, wanted to get what I wanted, and I was just a broke kid back then. So, you know, it was a, it was a while before there was like money to spare for anything like that. Yeah, I don't know when I first checked it out when I was like seventeen, eighteen. I liked the idea of being tattooed, but then I checked out what was available in San Diego, and it was very like you know, like twentieth century tattooing. It was geared towards. In San Diego, is geared towards Navy and Marines, and then bikers, kind of, and, and and everything was was just like you walk in the studio and and there's images on the wall. You choose from those images or nothing at all. As much as I have an appreciation for that whole thing now, I think that that old culture of tattooing is is great, and it's actually probably a better way to do things. <laughs> In what way? It's just um, I don't know. Like in in those days, I think the fact that the that the tattooers controlled every aspect of the situation, and they were very much like you know, you're coming to see this guy. It's kind of mysterious, you know. Probably not really a master, but seems like you're going to see a master. And and they're just so like outside of most people's normal experience at that point that it was really you know this small group of guys and ladies too even back then controlled this stuff you know you i don't know it was it's just a it's just kind of a better way because now it's like really there's no there there is no control of who's going to tattoo in your town or who's not going to tattoo you might say well like that's a matter of freedom but it's also it's also a matter of keeping your craft up to a certain quality. Like with any craft, like welders said that, like nobody would have a problem with welders, you know, making sure that people were up to a certain speed. Tattooing is a craft too. And so people would also control it. So, you, you know, you had to learn it the right way before you were sanctioned by the other tattooers in your town, in the country, whatever it may be. I mean, I, I kind of like that thing. But when I first approached it, like the people of today, I wanted my own thing. You know, I wanted I wanted something custom. And they were like, no, no <laughs> get, get this little like ladybug thing off the wall. That's a good starter for you. Or a whatever. Ta- you know, a Taz. 
get a broken heart, sad boy, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to those places in downtown San Diego and they were, uh, yeah, so like you said, mysterious. And you kind of felt like I shouldn't even be in here looking at the wall, you know? Well, I shouldn't have been because I was too young, but, uh, but yeah, and then those, yeah. those downtown San Diego. Yeah. The, uh, the vibe of those old tattoo shops and all the porn theaters and just that, that downtown area had such a, uh, mystique. So juicy. So I juicy. Love, so I underworld. I was just looking, I was looking at some, some lady posted a picture of Funland. Oh yeah. Today. And she was like, Oh, this is my grandpa's place back in the day. Whoa. Yeah. Tell people what Funland was. Oh, Funland was an arcade that was uh that was on Broadway where you could uh play all kinds of pinball. They had ski ball. I think ski ball was kind of a big attraction there. There was a tattoo shop in the back, like right past the counter would you where you'd buy all the like the knives and the fake switchblades and stuff like that. The first uh ace tattoo was in the back there. And um, I'm not sure exactly who started with that place, but, you know, people came through there like uh, Eddie Deutsch came through there. Mike Stovey came through there when they were very young. I don't think they exactly did apprenticeships there, but they, they came through there when they were very young and tattooing. Kinsey, who's a guy who's owned tattoo shops here in San Diego, that was actually one of the spots he was at in the 70s. He had Big City Tattoo here in North Park, which was around for like 25 years or so. Yeah, the Sunland Arcade. It was the place for all the sailors because it was just like blocks from the docks, you know? Yeah, such a CD. And I just imagine the stories those walls could tell of all the fights and just crazy mayhem. Yeah, at the same time, like reading this lady's like recollection, it was like, oh, yeah, that was the fun place that my uh, my grandpa used to run. <laughs> Yeah, he was like he had, he had a couple other places like it. Like he had he had one like in Point Loma or something like mm. that that was similar. And yeah, it was to them. It was just you know it became CD, I think, really. But originally those those places were just like, hey, these are fun places for the servicemen to get their kicks. Like when they have leave, you know, sure, back yeah. in the fourth, whatever, whenever it started. Yeah, imagine know. opening day. It must have been so cool, sparkling. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, the world was like that back then where, you know, some people looked at things as and places for what they what they were totally innocently. But meanwhile, something would be going on in the background or in, sure. the, in the bathroom or something like that. You know, something sleazy might be happening in the same uh, in the same perimeter. So I like how you look at it, but yeah, I remember it from the seventies and the eighties, and it was it was rough. Yeah. It was mostly the like not the sailors. The sailors were always like, "Oh yeah, sailors," you know, they're like a little rowdy, you know. It's the downtown creeps, you the know? ones trying to take advantage of the sit drunken sailors. <laughs> yes, those people. Yeah, <laughs> the people that are gonna like you know just hanging out downtown all day trying to like sell people like fake dope and stuff like that. Well, at least they're not getting people into dope, but, you know, but they're also stealing people's money. Yeah. Do you remember those huge, like, paperback bookstores that were downtown? They, they were multi-story. There was, like, three or four of them. They just had paperbacks, and they were just, just really big. I remember just getting lost in those things, too. I don't remember anything that just had paperbacks, but mm. I, I do remember, um, I think it was Var Warren Brock's books was uh what was, what was, it was called? That, that was like three stories it was out like 
about 7th Avenue. Mm, okay, that, that's probably one of the ones I'm thinking of. On, on Broadway. What was that called? Warren Brocks. Warren Brocks. I think Pat Works used to work there, if you know who Pat Works is. Mm-mm. He was he's one of the um, one of the mod gang, you know, like the Morlocks, the Telltale Hearts. Oh, okay. So let's go back to San Diego music and that's the scenes. So you were talking about prior to eighty two, there was the sort of dead or alive original San Diego that you got into. Then well, eighty then the next scene, what do you how would you well, describe that one? Hold on though. That's not the original scene though. Okay. I didn't, I wasn't part of the original scene. Yeah, well, there's never an original. I mean, there's always a scene preceding it. Um, and, what what was what do you define like as the it, original? I feel like it really was kind of a change right about when I did get into it because that mm-hmm. that was really when things started changing. You know, like I mean, like one of the first bands that I saw was Black Flag with Dez, and uh, maybe like a year or so before Henry joined the band. Mm-hmm. So you know that's at least proto hardcore, you know, I mean, I I think that they felt like they were just punk rock and they were, but they were, they were definitely like little by little creating something different. Yeah. You know, and then all the other stuff that's happening that I didn't experience right then, like the bad brains is starting to form. So 1980 is pretty much like, yeah, 79, 80 is both like, it's both the time when people are starting to create hardcore and people are moving on maybe to post-punk depending on which direction they're going, you know, yeah. Joy Division or Black Flag. So anyway, I feel like the, the 70s scene that I've only heard about is like Shark Productions is one of the is one of the ones that I heard that put on shows. And, you know, the shows that happened at Skeleton Club. And there were earlier shows at Lions Club that were um, that were put on by one of those production companies. I forget. There was like two that were sort of like not really competing but they were two different ones both headed by women too hmm. and then tim also started doing shows um early on but I, I don't think he started doing them with a lot of frequency until kind of later do you remember who the two women were one's name was renee edgington and i i believe that she's passed away the other one is, was named laura fraser she might have been shark productions David Cloudon is somebody who knows that whole story very well because hmm. even though he was only like 13, he was at all those 70s shows. He was kind of a little mascot and used to hang out in the DJ booth the whole time. I mean, I don't know. Describing poor Dave as a mascot, I hope that's... <laughs> well, if you're 13 <laughs> hanging out at those shows, you're yeah, you're you're the scene mascot. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was a kid and, you know, they kind of took care of him. But um, he also... Like I think he worked. He worked for one of them as part of that production crew. So he he knows all of that. You know, Dave's a writer, so he's a, he's he's good at describing stuff. He I'd like to talk know, to him if he was interested. He'd be really good to talk to. Mm, okay, he wrote Did a punk rock novel too. You know that? No, what was it? What's it called? Do you know? I haven't read it, but it's um. I just know that it it's sort of like it's set in that older punk scene but it's a novel about some kind of it's almost like a noir type mystery maybe it's a murder mystery or something like that i don't know i'm probably totally fucking it up right now he's he's gonna be like oh bobby (laughs) that's not what my book's about at all it's your impression of what the book is you said you haven't read it yet i'll look into that did you see the germs show that in san diego no no that was that i i mean actually i don't know when the the last germ show was in san diego but like i said my first show was in august 
Oh, okay. And he was dead and by... I think it was previous to that. That's, right. That's all I know. If there had been a germ show, I think after after that first show that I saw, I definitely would have been there. No, I do remember being at an exterminator show when I heard that Darby had died and somebody announced it. People were, uh, I don't know, people took it, actually. Some people yelled some rude stuff, actually, which was kind of like, again, I won't say, I won't mention names, but people said some like loud, kind of homophobic stuff about Darby, which was kind of disappointing. It was especially, it was weird too, because yeah, I think that the whole thing was the scene was wide open. So you had room for both homophobes and homosexuals, like in the same, like they'd be friends even, you know, if not friends, they would definitely be in the same space, maybe. Maybe they'd fight or something, but I, it's one of the first places that I remember being around openly gay people was at those first punk rock shows that I went mm. to. And then I remember that also wasn't so much of an, an aspect of it, not too much later. Like you didn't see those people come around much anymore, and it became this much more uh, homogenous kind of thing where folks were like trying to figure out the uniform and then once they figured out the uniform, they'd kind of worked that uniform for a while. I don't know. It was not a very interesting aspect of it, to say the least. The whole thing where people are like, you know, just adopting a certain look that's based on a certain look that somebody else came up with or, or somebody else copied that somebody else came up with. And it's just like, it's like, well, yeah, I know it's fun, it's fun but um, it's also a little boring. Like, I like the, the people that if they were going to do the fashion thing, like they really came up with some stuff that was like, oh, well, you did what, <laughs> you know, like, not like, oh yeah, we're going to do this kind of thing that looks kind of crazy and kind of, you know, tribal and whatever, but it like, you can find one of me in the next town, whatever. You can go halfway around the world to a metropolitan city and you can find the guy that I copied this look from. <laughs> right. Yeah, even pre-internet, looks would spread, you know, through a photo or something, you know, and it would kind of be copied in a different area. Dude, you could you could so do that, like like take a group of photos of punks from the King's Road, especially ones that got published on the covers of record covers, like um, uh, Punk and Disorderly. Say, yes, for right. Yes, that's a good example. Um, that's the one that I did the GBH flyer based upon, basically oh, yeah. looking at those guys, you know, it's funny. Somebody made a comment like, oh, these guys look like they could be a, a band today. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> or this looks like it could be artwork for a band today. And I, I was just like, well, I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I didn't comment on it without the irony i i was at that was actually a shot across the bow at punk rock i was kind of not a fan of a lot of what was going down at that point and it was just a lot of thuggish kind of people a lot of um like i said um especially the people that went for the whole english thing it was like come up with your own fucking version of that don't just be like oh well i look like wadi or i'll look like the guys from gbh you know? Yeah, and you go to those stores in LA and you could buy all the gear, just, you know, retail. I mean, yeah, they were definitely encouraged to do that by having these retail stores and things like that. Either way, you could twist it a little bit. You know what I mean? You could, you make, give it, it, yeah. you could make it different, have it have your own personality. And certainly some people did that, but yeah, there was 
there was a whole lot of cookie cutter punks and the cookie cutter punks were just i don't know like it was like nobody was like doing anything that interesting in that crowd it's like they were just hanging out and doing speed and drinking beer uh, it, it became just like another rock scene just with mohawks um, at least if at least if you were in it really if you really look at it we're still such a tiny scene yes. that it was still a really weird animal actually pretty cool in that sense considering the ethos that we came from there was way too much uniformity going on and not enough innovation you know what yeah. i mean now we're now we're to the point where like if you say like you're a punk, you know, or like that's the 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 culture that you come from. I, I might be able to assume that you dig Sunrod too. That's where I'm at. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, there's yes, I do know what like, you mean. Right. It's like, not about just like, like yeah, it's, orthodox. It, it's not about this really little like group of of people that just do it, but it's about people that had their minds blasted open at some point. And punk rock might have been the thing that did it. For me, it, I think that was. I listened to a lot of music before punk rock because I had a very young dad and a young mom. My dad had a a decent record collection. I used to just go into it, you know? And uh, I loved music, like, before punk rock. What had been your favorite bands prior to punk? The Stones, Cheap Trick. I really liked the early Stones a lot. And they were kind of like, still when I got into punk rock, I didn't have that many records. That was the only thing that gave me like a little bit of that feeling yeah so i still listen to them like all the time the like 64 to 66 stuff so the arc year when i was listening to you i was thinking you know you talk about the early years then that that kind of for you um 80 82 then the kind of cookie cutter punk from your perspective then and at the beginning of the conversation you mentioned you know the crash worship to you symbolized or represented a kind of return to that in my understanding like a return to that spark of total originality and uh, the punk rock spirit without the orthodox uh application and look and style is that kind of what the arc is like in your thinking yeah they had sort of like the pure the pure theory or whatever you know they were very um super uncompromising in what they were doing maybe more so even than any punk bands that I'd ever experienced. And you performed like, with them, right? You were like danced at some of the shows and things like that. Uh, no, I, I didn't perform with them, but I, I was an instigator in, in uh, some of their, not like their earliest shows, but a little bit after that, like say between like 88 and I don't know, 90, 91 or 92 or, Something. What do you I mean kinda, you were an instigator? It was really on me. Like I would just be at every show. Like, but I kind of hung out with them. I was connected. So I knew what they were doing all the time. You know, we were constantly talking to each other. Or at some point, at some point I used to sleep at Jason Lane's house like three or four days a week, you know, mm-hmm. just because I, I I lived at this place in Vista, like in East Vista, way the fuck out there. And I did not drive a car at that time or i didn't possess a car i should say so i i was doing these marathon bus rides you know to hang out with anybody uh, i would get done like say hermiting in vista for a few days i would come out to jason's house stay there for a few days you know till i got sick of it or they got sick of me one or the other 
And then I'd go down to San Diego and I'd stay with Damien. He lived with uh, a girlfriend of his, Lisa. That's Damien from Daddy Longlegs. And so I, I'd kind of bounce back and forth between those two places and Vista for a few months. I don't know. I was just like kind of living for that shit right then. I was hanging out with Crash Worship. I'd be at all of their shows, but it wasn't it wasn't anything like I didn't go to like I maybe went to one crash worship practice and it was just because like hey we're practicing do you wanna uh, you wanna hang out but I, I didn't have anything to do with what was actually going down in their show they never discussed anything with me it was just this chaotic kind of like they would play and I would figure out some way to stir the crowd up to me what what I what I was doing was very similar to um to the Pipes of Pan and Jajuka, they have a character called Bujalud that is uh, a guy that dresses in goat skins, and then he takes cane switches from the fields, and when the drummers play, he goes into an ecstatic dance, and at some point, because it's a rites of spring, he takes those, those canes and he flails the women with it. It's a ritual to make sure that both the people and the fields are fertile for that coming year. So that's what I was doing. Not trying to fertilize anybody, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> fertilize the show. Yeah, I was trying. I was trying to, um, you know, fertilize their minds or their not their minds, but their be- the, just their being. So I was trying to spark people's, you know, like their awareness to um, jump into that rhythm and do that with me i remember like when they were smaller shows like at the che cafe the first shows that i saw by them there would be a decent sized crowd but they would just stare the whole time but the music was really rhythmic and sometimes jason would get out into the crowd or i don't remember her name but one of their earlier singers i remember her and jason like jumping around in the crowd sort of like i don't know if they were trying to get people going but first, I would start jumping around with Jason when he would do that. And then I would just do my own thing where, like, the first song that they'd start playing, they, you know, they'd go into one of those trademark just drum things to enter into it. But it'd be creating a lot of, a lot, a lot of tension to a buildup and, like, some type of an explosion. And I would just, when the explosion came, I would run at the crowd from behind and kind of submarine into the middle of it. And then pop up in the middle and just like just do like a monster pogo. But I had long dreadlocks at the time with like lots of like wooden and glass beads in them. They were really heavy. And I would flail the people with those. Not really on purpose, but that was what was gonna happen either way. And I, I knew it, but I was just like, Well, this is this again, this is punk rock. It was still entirely my perspective. I was like, This is punk rock and we're gonna make this happen. And so I just would dive into the crowd and start moving and and uh, not doing the punk rock thing where you like run into people, but more like just this rhythm, get this rhythmic thing going, you know, and then get everybody would start going, and then maybe it would move in directions, or maybe it would just be this like kind of like surging kind of thing. The crash worship thing was like to me that was almost like the fruition of of everything earlier i know not a lot of people in the underground world got to experience them but plenty did and i mean they traveled they went they're one of the only san diego bands that like toured europe and stuff like that early on you know they they were they were in like czech and places like that crazy shit for like 
early to mid nineties. I met my ex-wife because of craft store shit. How'd that, um, how'd that, how'd that happen? It's kind of like, it's kind of like one of those like degrees of connectivity. Mm-hmm. She saw them and met them in uh, Germany in Hamburg, where she's from. This was maybe like a couple months before we met something like that. And they had been out there, been out there touring, like in the summertime, I think it was weird. Cause I remember when they were out there and they came back and stuff and, my ex-girlfriend at the time had been with Jason and then she was on that tour and stuff. And we were doing this back and forth thing and they came back from the European tour. And finally, you know, we broke it off for good. And uh, at Christmas time, I was like, I need like a mental break from all of that and everything. And so I went to Mexico. I went to Oaxaca. Magically, I was even gifted the ticket to Oaxaca. Mm. At the airport, I was going to Mexico City. I bought a ticket for Mexico City. And I just asked the guy in LA, like, how much if I want to connect to Oaxaca? And he's all, oh, you want to go to Oaxaca? <laughs> Merry Christmas. No. And I, I didn't even say I want, for sure wanted to go. And he I, just so did I, it. So I just said, well, I guess I'm going to Oaxaca. It's meant to be. I met her there just like, I'm drinking coffee one morning. I see this funny looking lady behind me. You know, you can tell she's kind of like interesting, you know, she's not like that strange looking. It's not like a punk rocker or anything like that, but you can tell she's into something else and uh, it's probably not, not your average bear. Yeah. And and so um, I talked to her, I forget which one of us talked to each other first, but I talked to her, we hit it off, friends hung out for a while and ended up married by the time that trip was over. Married in Mexico. Yeah, you know, just like me and her, we went like up on a hill and we go, okay, you're married now. Just in front of uh, in front of God and the sky or whatever. We did that our- ourselves. And then a couple of years later when she was in San Diego, actually, we went, we went to a justice of the peace and did it just so that, you know, she could be here and stuff like that legally. Yeah, the, the way that it happened was, was she met them in Hamburg. She did fire. Like her and a girlfriend did a fire show mm-hmm. as part of their performance. Again, yeah. just like just like I would, they just show up and do their fire shit and somehow fit in. You know what I mean? It was just like a carnival situation. So they met those guys and um, they befriended this guy Jay that's that's from New Orleans. Well, he's not from New Orleans. He's out in New Orleans for years. He was also a hardcore crash worshipper from since the 80s he was over there in europe with them she met him they hit it off as friends or or whatever i don't i don't know like maybe they were gonna date and and he was like hey come visit me in new orleans and so she was trying to do that but she got uh she got kicked out of the country um when she tried to enter the country because she had overstayed a visa before so can't go to the usa so they they literally sent her back to the states she still wanted to go someplace, so she went to Mexico instead. And then we met right after that. It was really was bizarre. She knew them, and then she knew other people that that I knew that were from Hamburg that hung out in San Diego and lived in San Diego even with craft worship and wow, and me. Yeah, it was just weird. It was weird, and in the middle of fucking like Mexico. What was the town in Oaxaca? Oaxaca. It was Oaxaca. The- it- it was the Zocalo in the in the city city center, Oaxaca, Oaxaca. That was cool. I mean, obviously, I said she's my ex wife, so we're not together anymore. But um, 
that was a cool story, a, a very cool origin story for my son. Like it's kind of a, like all those things had to work out or homeboy wouldn't exist. <laughs> How old is he? 23. I think he appreciates uh, our stuff, but he's, he's not into it. It's not like his thing or anything, which makes sense. I mean, I know there are young punk rockers that do make it their own thing. Like it's absolutely like not, I mean, it's sort of referential in a way to the stuff that we participated in, but it's entirely their own, like new shit. And you'll, you'll find similarities in the music, but I don't know. They're so, they're so like their own thing, like the modern hardcore scene, the modern DBC punk rock, you know, it seems kind of like the, the punk rock that's like current stuff where it, you know, people that are, I mean, there might be some teens playing. I don't know so many teens, but, you know, 20s and 30s. I guess what I consider young people at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it's hardcore and DB. There's not a lot of just like punk rock bands. Right. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Maybe I'm not noticing. It. Maybe. But like what I see, like when there's shows of local shit or shows down in Tijuana, which has like a really strong scene also, by the way. Just the whole the whole South Side here, like South San Diego and Tijuana kind of dominate punk rock. That's the that's kind of the most creative force in punk rock, I feel like right now is like the Mexican American kids and the Mexican kids are doing with it. Yeah. And there's and there's like there's people that are like in bands from both sides. Some people live in Chula, some people live in Tijuana, or some people live in San Diego, some people live in Tijuana. Yeah, that's a very San Diego dichotomy. I think of Salucio Mortal and the whole sort of border jumping to play a show, you know. Uh -huh. They still exist, by the way. That's Salucio. what I understand. Yeah, I I I think I'm Facebook friends with one of their one of their members. Yeah, they're they're still doing things. I think I saw him like recording vo recording vocals on a record or something the other day. Thought that's awesome. There's a there's a whole another world like really like south of the border. You know, I mean, fuck, there's so much more into punk rock. Yeah, like, I mean, that's when I think of punk now. I mean, I, I it's mostly from watching videos on Instagram and stuff. But like shows in East LA, shows in Mexico, South America. This seems like that's. Where, yeah, like you were saying, that's where the punk, yeah. the most vital stylistic yeah. uh, ancestor or pred, what do you yeah. call them? Yeah. The, cra the craziest shit that I, that I have seen are Los Crudos shows. Madness. Like in Mexico City, in South America, yeah. even, even in Tijuana, they're just like fucking explosive, in insane. Even, even more recent shows, you know? Yeah, right. Because, you know, they're older now, stuff like that. But I, I haven't seen them for maybe like 10 years. But the last time that I did see them, you know, they were going off, going off. It didn't, it didn't seem like they were any older musically. Yeah, that's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? The, the Latinx punk rock yeah. vitality. Yeah, whatever, whatever that is. And, and I mean, you know, like we, like we know, like when you're talking about the East L.A., Mm -hmm. Like that there's a, there's a definite scene that goes back there, you know, all Big the way time. to the seventies, you know? Yes. And then if you, if you really look, there is bands in Mexico, there's bands all throughout Latin America in the seventies too. Just the same thing. 
they heard about Thank you know what was, what was going on in England because it yeah. was a big media hype. And so they're like, oh, yeah, let's do it. You know, you got bands from Chile or Argentina or Brazil, you know, even even back then. If you think about not just Mexican-Americans, but but anybody that's that's from any part of Latin America has to go through being in the United States. It makes perfect sense to have punk rock as a vehicle for your expression. Yeah. To all of that in the United States. And then I, I don't know because it's a different set of like what people go through on the other side of the border and in other countries. But yeah, some of those places are, from what I hear, pretty oppressive situations sometimes too. Oh, yeah. And they're, they're definitely dealing with a lot of police bullshit and a lot of government corruption. They just have way more to fucking yell about. You know, or way more to make punk rock about. So consequently, it's charged tours there all the time. All these, like, I mean, just heavy music, heavy music, and really kind of dark music, which punk rock is a part of in a way. At least that that end of it, you know, like the serious end of it. Yes, it has so much more of a home there. San Diego is all like, I don't know, like what draws in San Diego is a little bit more like escapist as far as like music i think you know the indie stuff might be cool it might have like a little bit of an edge to it but mostly what's going on here is like even metal like has a pretty small crowd here there's a way better crowd for it in tijuana way better way better there's way more people there and if you go to metal shows here you'll see all kinds of people from tijuana it'd be weird it's it's, it's, it's almost like a you stand in the back, you'll see like people from Mexico, and then you see all these other people that are, you know, they got their Viking shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, their runes, um, whatnot. Yeah, I was thinking too about how the Latin world is also a guitar music is so big in it. You know, like I was thinking about like Peso Pluma, that, um, um, I guess he'd be called a narco corrido, you know, hip hop kind of guy who's huge, huge musician. Like his band is all guitars and, you know, stringed instruments. And they're like a super big, you know, he's like a big breakthrough, you know, billboard top artist. And it literally would be the only person on the billboard chart, like in the top 10 that has guitars prominent in the music, you know, the guitar, you know, traveled the world through Spanish hands and, you know, uh, I don't know what I'm getting at exactly, but the, just the guitar, you know, in Mexico, Latin America is a huge instrument. So you can kind of see how, you know, the punk rock thing would be so huge there. I mean, I know, I know hip hop's huge too, but it's it's a real guitar culture That's south true. of the border. Yeah, it's true. And then, of course, yeah, when you think of skulls and things, you, know, you think of punk rock art, you know, the skulls with mohawks and you think of Dios de los Muertos and things like that. You know, the memento mori in, in uh, Latin culture. You know, death imagery is just woven into that thing, and you think, well, it's so natural, punk rock, and that's that starts before the Europeans too. Yes, oh yeah, it goes way back to the Aztecs to before them. It's in in pretty much like every place that that I've been to down there, and I I toured through like southern Mexico and Guatemala and visited some ruins and stuff, and they all have a lot of death imagery, a lot, a lot of death imagery. Oh yeah which is actually life imagery when you look at it, because that's what, what they're portraying a lot of times is they're, they're portraying 
that moment that the life escapes from the body. There was this, this one one place where I was looking at stone carvings of a, of a beheading. Mm-hmm. I think it was at, at Chichen Itza on the ball court there. What's happening is the person's been beheaded. Their head is like on the ground. The warrior is still holding the body like by the by the neck, and he's made the cut. And then there's like like twelve snakes jumping out of the neck. You know, symbolic of the of the life force, like the Kundalini escaping you know, in in, uh, in in Indian uh, thought. It, I mean, it was like. I saw that I was like, it's the exact same thing. The exact same idea as, you know, having the Kundalini being that which animates your body and always symbolized by snakes in ancient or archaic art. Here you go, Chichen Itza, like halfway across the world, like at the same time as some of those things were being founded, those thought systems were being founded in India. They're doing the exact same thing in uh, Mesoamerica. So yeah, archetypal, some deep waters. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's like it's it's violence, but it's not. You know, so it, like the way that we look at it from our perspective today, it seems very violent. But what it what it's really illustrating is, uh, you know, much like the Day of the Dead, it's it's something about illustrating the value of life itself by making you aware that it's a finite deal you know yeah death is there so that's that's the end of your of your life experience showing how even the the occurrence of death is a proof of life yeah and why, it's rebirth too you know? the coolest. right why they're so timeless <laughs> you never yeah. i mean it's and, the ultimate punk uh, and metal yeah symbol. and if, any, if anybody says oh like god aren't you gonna draw anything besides skulls are you still a teenager or what there's all of that. It's, I mean, it's, it's such a fucking cool image of just what it is to be human, what it is to live, but not live forever. And to know that you're not going to live forever to, I don't know, to value that you only have a certain amount of time to get whatever you're going to get done, done, be, and be whoever you're going to be. You can't like waste time being an asshole today or not that we don't do it. <laughs> I of can course. definitely waste time that way. <laughs> oh, we've all done that. Yeah, but there's an urgency. And I mean, also you get to our age and, you know, we were just at Rick's memorial. You know, We're constantly being reminded. And of course, just growing up in San Diego punk, I mean, half that scene from the 80s is no longer with us. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an urgency. There's a there's a tap. There's a bony finger tapping us all on the shoulder saying, do it now. It's up to us yeah. to listen to it. You know? Yeah. I don't stay in that thought all the time. I'm aware that that these days at at this point in my life, I can't guarantee anything. Right. You know, I, t- I tell my son that I try and help him out with life as much as possible. And I'm like, you know, like I'm not, I'm not trying to be negative or scaring you or anything, but really like the sooner that you can get everything accomplished on your own without any help from me or anybody else, the better, because like, I'd like to be here forever, but I have no, I have no guarantees. Like I see what's happening with my friends. I could die later this afternoon. You know, it's, not planning on it (laughs) but But it's just a fact but it it could happen i feel like it's 
you know, if I just think about it, I feel like it's kind of not that likely. Like I'm probably going to like live probably like longer even than than is comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) And so I hope I have a lot of time to get a bunch of more shit done, but yeah, you can't guarantee it. So like any, and either, either way it's getting late, even if it's not over, it's getting late. It's good to, if you're going to do something to do it now, make it now, go there now, do whatever, whatever the hell it is that you want to do. I mean, I agree with that. I hear you. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that I had you on the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> now, if we right. do, let's do it again sometime. It's been For sure. a yeah. real pleasure talking to you, a true pleasure and an honor. I'm sure you could, you could tell I could talk forever on some subjects. So yeah, I'd, I'd love well, to do it again. We will do it again soon. I would love to do a part two in the not too distant future. Right on. Thank you very much, Jason. I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh man, thank you, Bobby. And uh, I'll put in links to what should I put in links to to uh, to your tattoo business? Just to my Instagram. Okay, and if anybody wants yeah. to get some work done by you when they're in San Diego, they'll be able to contact you. Yep, that's a that's a good way. Yep. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you. God bless. Love you. Love you too, brother. Adios.